Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 100. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum, and you know I'm hoping for a hundred more years of extended clip. Uh, I hope to live a hundred years. It's the hundred years mindset. I hope we all live a hundred years. Uh, I'm JT White, and uh, I hope all that stuff too. You know, it's such a beautiful night tonight. Our hundredth episode, the first main feed episode that we're recording here at the Grandma's Boy Studio. Yes, uh, rest in peace to the Jean-Luc Godard, Chris Kyle Studios, but we're moving forward in our lives. And, uh, you know, on our first episode that we recorded here, I actually talked about how I'm kind of in my, you know, midlife crisis. I'm not quite, I'm not quite on board with the 100 years mindset for my own life, but I think the podcast can live far beyond my own breath. You yeah. Know? After all of us die, the podcast will continue. I'm, we're already raising three young boys <laughs> yeah. i've I, I was in the scouting process for the first you know 50 episodes and then over you know 51 to 75 malcolm was grooming the the 10 that i'd selected and now jt is rigorously coaching our three replacements <laughs> <laughs> well that's i mean that's a really fucked up thing to say about me i, I would i would i wouldn't I can't take that line down. I'm not. I'm not involved with any children like that, and I think you to imply so. It's just kind of disgusting. Young boy just means like 19. <laughs> I, I'm. I'm a middle. I'm a middle-aged man. That's no. Know. I'm saying they're like they're like all like 10 years old, 12 now. I'm just screaming at them and blowing a whistle at them while they're recording it. Well, into... I, one of those kids have to go because my son will be my replacement, and that's <laughs> I'll only have a blood replacement. So I guess yeah. maybe extended clip will not. <laughs> last 100 years but our triple feature <laughs> to welcome ourselves to the new studio uh which will only be the studio for like two months all three icons of the podcast hey, who were who were the three the three icons are mount rushmore if you will well if you look at it you might say you got godard you got sandler and then you got chris kyle but as much as we love chris kyle we we decided it's probably better to go eastwood we don't want to watch uh I don't know, like a, a random Chris Kyle documentary or something like that. So um, we're saving American Sniper for a rainy day, not the not the hundredth episode. Yeah, we're another saving milestone. American Sniper for pairing it with a rainy day in New York. That's exactly. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. I, I kind of just derailed myself mid phrase. Glad you could pick up the slack. But it's Clint Eastwood, Jean Luc Godard, and Adam Sandler. And so our triple feature is Jean-Luc Godard's Sympathy for the Devil from 1968, Feet, The Rolling Stones. From Adam Sandler, bringing up the rear in, in, in the, the sea movie uh, territory, <laughs> 50 First Dates, a classic Happy Madison production directed by Peter Siegel. And in the middle of that, the the true god of the pod who can do no high or low brow he can only just be clint eastwood honky tonk man the 1982 film well what what were your guys first impressions here of this triple feature about music love and the cinema i mean you know trying to consider them 
all together, right? Yeah, it's like got a lot of. <laughs> I'm not. I don't. I don't know what I was about to say. <laughs> I was. I was just kind of winding up and seeing if I had anything. <laughs> I didn't really have a collective three film thought. No, I was excited to approach all three of them finally together. What people have demanded, been demanding for years now. Finally, we fucking done it. And I don't. I. Honky Tonk Man, I had never seen before, but I was like chomping at the bit too. The 51st States, I've seen, like, this is like my third time within a year, and like, I always cry through the last 40 minutes of it. <laughs> and it's just an all timer. And uh, Sympathy for the Devil, I saw in theaters and I was eager to revisit. And I think uh, I unlocked it a little bit more this time mm. around. Well, let, let's start off with Sympathy for the Devil. I know it's a triple feature. We're not going to try and go super, super long. I say that now. And, you know, if you're listening to this, you can see the runtime <laughs> of the episode and how I'm lying. But let's get right into it. Sympathy for the Devil, a.k.a. one plus one. Now, now it's funny that you, you said one plus one, right? Because to me, this movie doesn't make any goddamn sense. I can't put two and two together, let alone one plus one. So maybe you guys could help me out here. <laughs> I, think, I think you're not alone here. Uh, JT and I were actually at the same screening of this film a couple of years back. Ooh. And there was a lot of uh, people in the crowd who were visibly like <laughs> angry about certain parts of it. And uh, just like sh- a lot of shifting in the seats and a lot of just like disquieted, discomforted people. But I, I think I have a grip on the one plus one aspect. I mean, it, it goes between two things, essentially. Okay. This is almost like his densest deconstruction of shot, reverse shot, like 50 years before what he would do in something like Notre Music with that opening montage. One thing that he's doing uh, is documenting the Rolling Stones conceiving of and recording their hit track, Sympathy for the Devil. The other thing he's doing is a very, I guess, typical for 1968 Godard, uh, you know, sketches of art house Maoist comedy, I guess, Uh, just kind of taking the temperature of the time. Some of it lands and is insightful and playful, like some stuff in La Chinois or even Made in USA. Uh, the the less narrative parts of that movie, I guess. Yeah. Um, some of it, yeah, I I can see the frustration because even I was a bit bored by by some of the Godardian wankery in those segments. <laughs> but I mean, I I think that like him showing the Rolling Stones in these long takes of you know kind of these musical deconstruction where you'll hear one instrument over and over or you know just certain parts of the track that they're perfecting or an early version of what the track sounds like as the camera is just kind of freely floating and all the light sources are fully visible and you know people are looking at the camera and it's a full-on deconstruction versus the kind of like perfectly staged also in long take yeah, as I said, Godardian wankery, as it were. <laughs> yeah, no, this one, I think this time around, I was really able to cop to, like, I, I like it a lot because it's really playful in the sense where, like, one, I mean, going back to our theatrical experience with this, Eddie, it was so fucking funny to see a bunch <laughs> of old hippies, like, come in, like, expecting, like, um, just, like, 
uh, like an hour, 40 minutes of the stones just jamming yeah. out and then to be confronted with this and just that like <laughs> made me so fucking happy. But I think it's like also a, a weird like synthesis of like why I, why Godard is interested in the stones is like very perplexing to me because <laughs> he's like such a straight laced guy who I don't think was ever interested in like drug experimentation or like that type of aspect, but it seems to be like marrying kind of like the cultural spirit of like 68 with like the more like the more legitimate like political aspects and revolutionary side. I mean, Godard is having fun with that, like on course, both yeah. ends and like isn't taking himself too seriously. But I think it's like playful and kind of like hopeful on that front. I mean, hopeful in the sense of like, I think his fascination with the stones as like a cultural force and sort of being like, I don't want to say revolutionary, but like being able to impact a movement. I think like that going analogous to like, um, social and political movements at the Mm. time, I think is an interesting comparison that draws like, that pops up there. Now here's a reading I picked up and maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm making this up in my head. Maybe, but is like Godard kind of like making fun of most most of the things he's showing. Yeah, it here. seems like he's yeah. definitely poking fun. Like yeah. there there are things he believes in. Obviously, like this is just before his Ziga Vertov group period. Mm-hmm. So there are things that I think a viewer could make fun of him for, like just having and uh Wyzemski like spray paint, you know, cinema Marxism <laughs> on a thing. It's like oh boy, but obviously like. It, it, it's him in, I guess, political irony mode in mm-hmm. a way uh, with, as JT said, the cultural spirit of 68. And I think that's what's so important is like that dichotomy of uh, just like a deconstruction of a popular rock song with, yeah, Godard's kind of spoofs on those things. Like, uh, I, I don't know. Like yeah. uh, early on you have, you know, uh, w- one of them starts with a guy just reading from a book, like a typical Godard movie, uh, about <laughs> like the, the roots uh, of blues in America and their black roots and everything. And then like it goes into a thing kind of about black power and black liberation. And, you know, you're thinking about the Rolling Stones who took from, <laughs> you know, black yeah. musicians and stuff like that. But then also... He, uh, he takes it a little too far, Godard, and then he turns it into just like a thing about all of these black revolutionaries fetishizing fucking white women. And it just goes on about that for like five yeah, minutes. Yeah, that was very uh, uh, funny. It's nothing more beautiful than a white woman's hair being blown by the wind. The white woman is more than a woman to me. She's like a goddess, a symbol. My love for her is religious and beyond fulfillment. It is, it is very funny. No, I watching like all of these sketches, it is like, um, you know, some of them hit for me and some of them don't necessarily. But what I appreciate about them is that like these are the opinions of a man who have thought about these things over and over and over again and like have tumbled them in his head to where it's like he kind of has his own very distinct view on these issues that like you know we could connect to somewhat with but it's just like some of it's just so i think personally kind of come up from um or just made up through like going through that process of just thinking about it over and over again even though you know you do have a lot of the book quotations but i like that and i also like the idea of like rolling stone fans like just coming in and being like what the what the fuck is this shit like uh i mean that you can't help but think about that and i i did a little bit of 
research. Uh, I think I just read some article or whatever, but I guess like Godard liked rock music. He was a big rock. rock yeah, I mean, head. he likes yeah. Bob Dylan. Yeah, you know? like mm-hmm. uh, he, he's more of a classical head, but he he appreciates what they were doing. I mean, he put fucking Tom Waits in Prenome Carmen. True. Remember that from episode two of the podcast <laughs> or whatever when, whenever we talked about that movie. Well, I saw that he wanted to make like a Trotsky biopic with like John Lennon or whatever, and that fell out because John Lennon like met with Godard. He's like, I do not trust this guy at all. <laughs> Which is that I mean, for what Lennon what was was going for, you know, I don't agree, but I, he might have had the right call for what he was going for yeah and then i guess the stones were just more willing to work with godard they're like okay hell yeah this guy's like kind of a trendy filmmaker exactly and and i guess they they also did not they didn't really take to the movie (laughs) they called him like an opportunist who wanted to get on on like the british scene basically well i mean to get (laughs) into easily read into that where it's just him smuggling his like you know sketch of a movie (laughs) into this behind the scenes doc (laughs) Into, like, the production aspect stuff, there are two points I wanted to hit here. One, even the more, like, cringier, like, like cinemarxism stuff, which I think I, I kind of like and, I don't know, I think it's funny and cheeky when Godard will do stuff that on the nose. Yeah, I mean, he he continued to do it. Like, obviously, the, the photography thing from Histoire du Cinema is, like, it's an eye roll that opens up hours of thought. You know? I just like that it's, like, I mean, he's doing real vandalism there. <laughs> like, imagine you're some like fucking asshole in Paris and then you come out and there's like uh like Stalin art written on your goddamn car and you're like what the fuck <laughs> but um the I think during the production of like some of the his his shooting the Stones recording I believe like uh, some of the film equipment like caused some things to like catch on fire sometimes. Wow. Oh my god! Just because like I mean, you see the way he like sort of tracks around yeah. here all the time. Like this had to have been like so intrusive. Yeah, I mean, I think that's another really interesting comparison here is his real mise en scène versus his fake mise en scène, and both of those quote unquote. You know, the the real mise en scène is the Rolling Stones acting as they are in rehearsal, jamming, recording, etc. And Godard and his cinematographer weaving around this studio, like going in and out, not making perfect circles, just kind of weaving in and out of this maze. Uh, Whereas the opposite is true of those sketches where it's like kind of classic, like very stilted framing from Godard, especially in that like bookstore scene where those two guys keep getting slapped by every woman while the bookstore owner reads from Mein Kampf. And it's like a <laughs> bookstore full of just like porno and comic books pretty much. What does that mean? Is that a, a, I, can- I, a cancel culture? That riff? sketch <laughs> makes no sense to me. And I, it's, the slapping is funny, but frankly, yeah, that that one makes no sense to me. I like the cool magazine covers. That yeah. is yeah. cool too. Um, I like that because also yeah. there, there's these slow pans that are very zoomed in on the covers, and then you know it'll just always you know trick you and pull you know zoom back out to put it into perspective. And yeah, the the cinematography here is real really effective in just like making everything pretty interesting, even even yeah. the least interesting things in the movie in terms of like text. Yeah, the Stones, like the Stones, the Stones recording sessions, like I really do like the mise-en-scene here and like uh, Godard kind of gets like this good rhythm of kind of like, um, you know, kind of using the music as a lead and just kind of like the way how he'll like kind of slowly move the camera to like each band member as they like start to contribute their part of the song and like, I don't know, stuff like that is like, 
it's you know it's it's well done and it's almost kind of you know simple to think about but it's just so pleasurable just kind of having like this uh the sinking of like visual rhythm and musical rhythm and i like the deconstruction aspect of it too like listening to the very generic rock drumming that goes behind the song for the first like 45 minutes to an hour uh where the song is just not coming together because those drums are just a generic rock beat kind of <laughs> and then it cuts to uh, and Wyzemski uh spray painting one of i think it's the one that says mao art or whatever or cinema uh, <laughs> and uh, then it cuts back to that like you know uh very very groovy uh hand percussion led beat like the problem is was solved by guitar's then partner uh doing politics <laughs> <laughs> very very silly way to bridge the gap there but like i don't know i i just feel like yeah, th- he's not as developed, obviously, as he would be after his Ziga Veritov group period. But there's that flair from his early 60s period that is clashing with that political sensibility that I think he, he can't get away from the flair. And like in something in uh, like uh, La Chinois or two or three things I know about her, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think he's always quite visually interesting in this. Like, Yeah, that's something that I like agree with you in that sense where I think it's significantly less coherent than later Godard, but I really just like the vibes of the movie. They, like, sort of take over, and I'm just willing to, like, I don't know, sort of feel it out, like, take what I will from, like, very funny or, like, good sketches and whatnot. And I think, like, you can, like, sort of interpret and draw out a lot. Like, it's, I mean, a lot of Godard, like, it's up to you to just sort of read and find meaning. But I think especially with the way he breaks down the the coming together of the song, I also feel like it gets to political ideas of like the individual versus like collectivism there where it's like you see sort of individual pieces of it. And like in some moments where you're just like hearing the Stone song being built, you're just seeing some fucking suits or like just blue collar guys like who have like set up like some of the stuff just chilling there. Yeah. Yeah, no, Godard definitely doesn't shy away from just like tracking around the studio to the point where you don't see the band for like two minutes. And it's just <laughs> like, who are these people? <laughs> uh, I, I love that. All right. One of the sketches, right? The one where it's kind of like the interview and it's like asking a mm. lot of various questions. All about oh, Eve. Eve of democracy. Yeah, Eve of democracy. Now, see, I'm I'm playing the layman here. I'm playing the dummy. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, so is that is that kind of like a, and th- is that is that the same one as the one where if the when she kind of lays on like the camera equipment at the end? Oh, yeah, yeah, I would assume so. Yeah. Yeah. And and what we're talking about here. So all about Eve is the first sketch here where uh, this woman is just being interviewed by these like British media guys. A man of culture is as far from an artist as a historian is from a man of action. Yes. Do you think that uh, drugs are a spiritual form of gambling? Do you think culture has lowered artistic creativity? Yes. Are drugs a poetic equation that can be carried right down to the end of its metaphor? 
Yes. And she's just answering yes and no to everything. So basically the British media guys are, you know, telling us everything we need to know. Mm-hmm. And it starts with her, you know, trying to call someone on a telephone, even though she's in the middle of the woods and it's not plugged into anything. Yeah. Is that like kind of like poking fun at like maybe like is is Godard calling out the fake revolutionaries with that sketch or something like that? Maybe. I, I don't. I frankly don't get it. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I watched, I've watched this twice. I don't get it. But that woman does come back on the crane, I guess, at yeah. the end. In the best thing of the movie, in my opinion, outside of the studio footage where you just see like a camera on a crane and a woman like under the camera so the camera wouldn't even see it. And it's just swinging around kind of. Mm-hmm. And the fact that just Godard just got a camera and a crane and we don't see any of the footage from that at all. <laughs> we just see the shooting of that is so funny to me. <laughs> oh, that was one thing. There's like a famous story where like Godard like punched the producer in the face at, at like after it premiered at the like London Film Festival after I think there was some like I, I think this is obviously the the right version of the movie, but he, they had changed it and like added like a full complete version of the mm. Stone song and he was just so pissed off. Yeah. <laughs> oh god. I mean yeah, you want that yeah. release after. You wanna hear the you wanna hear the real song and you know, some people do. Some people just move on to the next movie. <laughs> yeah, you know me, I you know no, I, I, I'm not really well versed in the Stones, you know, and I, I didn't, I thought that was the complete track. You the, know? the Rolling Stones, first rock band I ever saw in concert. Wow. Yeah. The, so. I saw them play this song and I, you know, as like a 12 year old with my uncle uh, and aunt uh, who actually helped me move into this very apartment. <laughs> it really comes full circle. Yeah. I remember the woo woos from that song. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pleased to meet you And then, you know, it comes full circle watching the people, those very generic mod hippies or whatever, uh, singing the woos in the studio. It's like, well, yeah, I guess I figured that's what they look like. I mean, as, as someone who, you know, I don't really know how to play an instrument and just kind of seeing the insight to that studio process, it is very interesting, like... I don't know how they have them all like spread out just doing individual things and how many people are just kind of walking in and out, you know, I think maybe, you know, even though we're not quite, you know, we don't do music, at least not yet. Maybe we need to kind of utilize the studio space like that. Like maybe someone's sitting and like, I don't, you know, I don't know. We have some people walking around. Yeah. I don't know. I think I have to build, uh, I have to build a camera track now just to (laughs) kind of go along. Yeah. Figure out the optimal route to guide through the grandma's boy studio. A hundred episodes, you know, we got to, we got to step it up. I'm going four bullets on this one. I, th- I think I've said my piece. JT, any final thoughts? Yeah, I think I'll go four bullets as well. I just enjoy the vibes. It's a good time. Absolutely. I'm going to go three bullets, and I, I kind of feel very similar to this one. Maybe like Made in USA is a good comparison to where it's just, I don't know. I guess I never quite settle in to where I could like, I don't know, reach it at a vibe level. I kind of... I enjoy it for its like its willingness to be very contrast heavy and kind of like uh, its willingness to experiment. But I'm not quite enjoying everything that I'm seeing. I Absolutely. enjoy the spirit of the movie, and so yeah, it's not not necessarily one of my favorite Godards, but it's still being a Godard movie. There's still a lot to consider and a lot to to chew on. So and also it it should be noted, you both have seen this in theaters. 
I think this this would benefit greatly from a, a theatrical theatrical experience, mainly yeah. because of the audio too. There's a lot of layered audio going on here. So yeah, rewatching it on this junky TV with no stereo definitely didn't do me any favors. I actually almost went three and a half, and then I just flashed back to like watching it in theaters and like the second time you go to that junkyard full of cars a bunch of guys just got up and went to the bathroom <laughs> <laughs> no it's it's yeah it's also stuff like that you know or him punching his producer in the face it's like i can't i can't this i'll never be able to dislike this movie. yeah yeah uh we'll be right back on extended clip please let me introduce myself i'm a man well and taste I've been around here for many a long long year so many a man's soul and faith yes I was here when Jesus Christ had his moments of doubt and pain I made damn sure that fire and we're back on extended clip Malcolm in the Middle is going to have to wait because we're talking about Honky Tonk Man. We just can't wait to talk about our love affair with country music, Clint and Kyle Eastwood, Bob Wills, whether or not he's the king still. Well, it's up for debate. Bob Wills fucking rules. I think we're going to figure it out by the end of this one. As I know me and Eddie are kind of recent country fans and JT, it seems like you've been listening for at least a little bit longer than us, but I feel like knowing country music at least a little bit definitely enhances uh, the appreciation for this mm. movie. Or yeah. I don't know. I just felt like... No, for sure. When I first watched... This movie basically got me into country music when I watched it. Like, blew me away, and I started slowly getting into stuff like, you know, Marty Robbins, who appears in this film, and uh, Hank Williams, and then more recently, Jimmy Rogers, who this film is loosely based on. Uh, and then just having that very basic knowledge aids this film so much like jimmy rogers obviously his story is a little different you know rather than going to the grand old opry he was uh you know between you know lung coughing up sessions was getting just a couple of huge recording sessions done to leave behind his you know legacy versus this where it's like uh he goes to get at the grand old opry and then you know spoilers more than just performing at the Grand Old Opry, it becomes, since he's rejected from that, it becomes about cementing his legacy on record. And so many of these Clint Eastwood films are about his own iconography, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think this one, mixing that with all of this, you know, uh, metatextual stuff about country music history, mixing Jimmy Rogers' story with other people uh is is just fantastic it's such a dense text but also just such an effective beautiful melodrama too yeah no i feel like that like there uh is one of the best ways to sum it up because i mean there's so much going on with like even clint's own history and like him bringing his son into it and like be like playing someone who is like an icon and him himself like being one there's just so many things that are operating here that it's just such a fun movie to like pick apart from various angles and i just think as a movie about country music especially like a lot of the early country musicians that i love so much it's like a very common tale i mean 
I think Hank Williams died like in a car, like as he was traveling from gig to gig. And a lot of these early guys were just like not making all that much money off of their records and would have to like just travel around the United States, like in a car, just like fucking playing wherever. And uh, I don't know. It's a very common country music story. Yeah. I think what's also impressive here is like the balancing of tones and there's, there's quite a lot of them because you kind of you have kind of like that road trip kind of like sense of adventure, kind of that outlaw spirit thing going for it. I mean, it's also, uh, you know, very funny in parts, too. Like there's some really uh, comedic, you know, just funny parts. But it also I mean, it's also just deeply, <laughs> deeply sad movie once, you you know, get down to the skin and bones of it. And uh, I don't know, like I, I think that's I mean, that that quality just in movies in general is something that. I appreciate more and more kind of like trying to balance various tones and still hitting on all of them. And I think Clint does it here in you know, a very impressive way. Well, I think what's important about the distinction you drew there is pointing out the outlaw spirit, because I think that dichotomy also is huge with this film is like that outlaw spirit versus the more conservative reined in approach that is radio friendly. You know, when Clint goes to visit Bob Wills, uh, who I mentioned as the king multiple times because of the Waylon Jennings song. It don't matter who's in Austin, Bob Wills is still the king. When he goes to visit uh, the, the fictional portrayal of Bob Wills, they're playing one of Clint Eastwood's songs, but it sounds like a like gospel song that's ready for the radio. It doesn't sound like how Clint has been doing it throughout uh, this this movie and it was a shock when i heard like jimmy rogers's music when i had heard hank williams before and you know his stuff i guess does fit into that grand old opry uh motif even if a lot of his songs are like suicidal <laughs> uh jimmy rogers is just like bragging about how many women he gets and how he's always you know he's a pistol packing papa and <laughs> stuff like that it is so much more cool and like proto outlaw i guess as you know i get if i'm wrong correct me if I'm wrong, the outlaw movement is more of like a 70s thing, right? Yeah, I'd say 60s, 70s yeah. for outlaw. I mean, it is like Bob Wills is definitely more of the straight-laced kind yeah, of guy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, I think, and what's great about country music is there's that overlap and sort of like family there where it's like they're all like, and you see it in the movie with uh, Eastwood meeting uh, Wills where it's like, they are two very different approaches and styles, but the respect is there nonetheless. No, I mean, that's something I've just kind of noticed in like listening to like Waylon Jennings mostly is that like he'll just shout out a lot of different country artists. And yeah. like, I love the meta aspect of that. And it's definitely you know, here too with the Bob Will shout out. And like, yeah, just appreciating that more because I heard Waylon Jennings say, like, this guy's the king. So, you know, it must be worth something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you hear, you know, the Rose of San Antonio on the, on the car stereo after they, they pay Bob Wills a visit. But to backtrack a little bit about what this film is all about, we see Clint Eastwood roll into town and it seems like a mighty storm is being kicked up just by his car from miles away. 
as his family uh, greets him. He's drunk, falling out of his car, hawking up lungs from TB, and already calling his nephew Haas, which is very cool. And uh, him and his nephew hit the road to hit some honky-tonks because his old Uncle Clint uh, Red Stovall is this kind of Jimmy Rogers-esque figure who is, yeah, dying of tuberculosis and trying to make a living as a country artist. You know, what also I kind of like in regards to the narrative structure is that a lot of this stuff, like, happens, like, very quickly. There's kind of, like, a quick pace to the entire movie and, like, kind of just, like, Clint, kind of the beginning, Clint rolling in and then kind of, like, knocking down most of their farm, like, destroying most of the infrastructure. And that's kind of, like, the catalyst. It's like well, we're going to have to like move because this is a depression. Like this was like our only way making money. Like, I don't know. There's just like kind of small savvy stuff like that, that kind of just, um, even though this is a two hour movie, it takes its time. It, it kind of, uh, I don't know, just makes certain parts of the narrative a little bit more succinct, which I like. Yeah. I mean, Clint is, you know, long mastered the, the pacing of the two plus hour yeah. movie. Uh, but I think this one, especially it's like, you could say it's slow because none of the scenes are all that fast in it into themselves but like you know you get that three scene uh thing in a row of clint and his uh his son but you know uh red and his nephew stealing chickens and then the (laughs) next morning confronting two cops about it and then him going to jail and the kid breaking him out over you know 10 12 minutes or so but that's like three pretty hefty scenes back to back that he packs in there and yet the feeling of those scenes within them is so drawn out for dramatic purpose each scene of course being great of course the (laughs) the uh, confrontation with the cop uh one cop always spitting on the ground and the other (laughs) cop uh clint asks if he likes groping another man (laughs) (laughs) i look like chicken shit to me snuffy oh you think so i swear to it now i seen enough chicken shit in my life to know When I see it. When was the last time you saw chicken shit, Jim Bob? When you were shaving this morning? Jim Bob. Yeah, I think there's a great balance there that occurs in terms of the portrayal of Clint's character, where it's like you get a little bit of like the classic, like sort of Eastwood swagged out charm, but it's really undercut at like all like various moments where it's like you get a little bit of that i mean at the beginning you you just see him drunkenly stumble in but then he like captures the imagination of this kid and is really charming but then when he's like going through like the thick of it really in pain after like drink like sort of withdrawing from drinking he's like brutal and mean and you constantly get that like interplay there and especially from the child's perspective of watching like someone he clearly admires be just like completely like a a real piece of shit no i i really like how it uses the the young boy as kind of like the audience viewpoint because it really you really do get the cool uncle experience right you know he's doing cool stuff he's saying words that maybe you know your pops wouldn't say but then, you know, you have to face that reality that the the hangover mornings, you know, him getting a little snappy. And then you, what seems like a hangover, uh, uh, you know, across the movie, it's like, it, you know, probably still is a hangover. But it's also it's like, oh, these are mostly tuberculosis pains and stuff yeah. like that. And it becomes more and more pronounced and just kind of just seeing, like you know, the kind of the the good and the bad, uh, you know, the both sides that the kid sees. You know, you really, uh, you know, you really feel for this character. I think Clint makes a good job at 
um, you feel in just kind of compassion for this outlaw country lifestyle and I don't know, like uh, just like living in honky tonk to honky tonk, you know, kind of, it, yeah. cons- it considers that lifestyle. And I like kind of the conclusion where it has, it's like, you know, you know, it might be a little bit empty in some sorts, but you know, it's still better than, you know, just uh, manual labor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, he, he the son, uh, or sorry, the nephew, I keep saying son because it's Clint Eastwood's son in the role. Uh, but Haas, AKA wit, uh, being his real name, said that, you know, he wants to be somebody, not just, you know, pick cotton like the rest of his family. And, you know, his father gets really mad at that. But then Clint approves of that. And then later on, another guy even asks him, don't you want to be somebody, man? You know, yeah. it's like that individual mindset that probably in the Great Depression is better than just pitching in on some fucking you know hot labor line like that just (laughs) sucks Uh, with your family who just also sucks other than your cool outlaw uncle who also takes you to whorehouses (laughs) in one of the greatest scenes just like uh, you know he's uh he's 14 uh 16 but uh no i I love the the whorehouse and very very funny how it all plays out you know Already busted in his pants already. Come on, man. Yeah. But <laughs> goes for round two. Yeah. <laughs> what a champ. But I mean it I mean a perfect world comes up in my mind when thinking about this movie a lot. It is like cut I was uh, I was thinking like a perfect world is kind of basically like an addendum to this movie in a mm-hmm. sense where Clint just kind of plays like this cop character and like that's why it's a little bit longer or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, that like outlaw spirit of like teaching a kid how to really live, yeah. you know, outside of the law it is very present in this. And you even have the grandpa just kind of approving of everything anyway. He's like, yeah, I just, I just want to get on my bus, you know, you guys are, <laughs> you guys just do what you want. Uh, but it's really funny when Cleese was trying to buy the prostitute first, so he's like... It's a sad state when a man can't buy a woman. We're his homeboy. <laughs> but they that. meet that guy, Hornspringer, finally, who they were looking for at this uh, this cat house, as Bob Wills' character calls it. And Hornspringer <laughs> is just this crazy flops what guy who like sets them up to mug a a diner or something like yeah. that. Just absolute nonsense. But it's very funny, just hijinks. Kind of reminds me of Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, you know? Mm-hmm. No, yeah, especially once, uh, you know, Clint comes in and kind of sticks up the poker game. That is, yeah, I mean, you do love to see swag, Clint. And, like, this movie, for it being such a, devolves into such a, a tearjerker, like, I love kind of, like, the dichotomy Clint has in the public image where probably most of it, maybe probably even, like, most of the fans in a general sense maybe less you know, more fans of his acting career rather than his directing career seem as very like macho swag, very sharp tongue guy where it's like a lot of these movies just end in pure tears. And like, I, I don't know. I just think that's a, I, I like that a lot. An interesting aspect that I liked. I mean, we talked a little bit about the history of it all beginning in the beginning. And I think the way it connects country music to like the history of the Western as well is really fascinating. 
and sort of like the American myth. I mean, the grandpa talks about how he like got there from like he came from like Tennessee, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. him talking about the run for like third <laughs> all of the grandpa's dialogues. Man, man, the run. <laughs> he should have there the run. And also, there are like moments where it's like the kid sees like this theater. Um, and I think one of the titles I wrote down is when when a man sees red, and of course Eastwood's character's name is Red Stovall, and that's where he gets the idea for the jailbreak. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just it elaborately ropes in all that Western history. You even get a beat like this is a little bit different. But I love that Eastwood pays a nod to the importance of black music and country music where you have that sort of like blues singer there that they're playing at that club. And Eastwood is doing piano and so much like history of the United States and sort of breaking down like myth. And that happens just sort of on the periphery in this film. Yeah, I mean, when they're at that Beale Street Blues Club and Clint and his nephew are the only two white boys in the club, uh, it's very funny as his nephew just gets absolutely stoned on the spliff that's being passed around him, I guess. (laughs) And then buries his uh, face into, you know, the poor singer's... Uh, titties she's like i love you very like kind of just awkward funny <laughs> beat but i i appreciate it nonetheless yeah it's yeah a, and there's like the cinematographer is doing something with the speed i guess or some something there uh when it's shooting her performance uh and it just looks really fantastic i don't know the yeah. way the way the camera moves around that club the dimly lit club is so good in that scene no the, the movie looks really good like the cinematography is really get great. Like it really does play with that chiaroscuro, like kind of like harsh beams of light, kind of uh, pouring into a dark room, and does it really well. Does some really good like blocking setups with like some people's faces shrouded in darkness, some in like lightness, and like it really considers the perspective of the kid. Where it's like I feel like there's like a lot of shots of from his perspective where we you know hear him from outside the honky tonk here, you know the Clint Eastwood character being the man. Or just even like the the cat house owner's uh, daughter, or just a girl he had there that like like when she's like listening into. There's a lot of like um, I don't know. There's a lot of like like foreground and background specificity. Like a lot of shots where like it will be focused on something in the foreground. It happens in the background or the a opposite. lot of that with. Yeah. Uh wit just watching Clint Eastwood perform like at that mm-hmm. first honky talk there's a fantastic split diopter of him oh, yeah. from outside just like mimicking his hand movements a little bit and you see all the way that long shot of Clint on the stage at the other end of the frame just really good split diopter work there when you get to Nashville uh, the second Clint opens the doors of the Grand Old Opry he starts coughing his lungs out and you just know it's going to be bad and he sings uh, Honky Tonk Man, a great scene earlier where, you know, oh. the nephew helps him write it. Very heartfelt scene for that to be the title track. And, uh, yeah, he fails the audition because of his coughing, but he still is able to get a record deal. And so he goes to lay down some of these recordings. And who who's backing up on guitar but old Marty Robbins, <laughs> uh, to speak of the outlaw and the studio country musician coming together. Uh, JT, you, you recommended me that Marty Robbins album right after I had watched this movie almost a year ago now. And man, it, it's killer. And this was, I guess, his final film performance, Marty Robbins. Yeah, it's sensational to see Robbins in this. And just like, I mean, again, it's Eastwood 
like not calling that much attention to the fact of how much he's like paying tribute to history. It's there for the real heads to appreciate. Yeah, like yeah, when there's that definitely. jailbreak, the the guys, the inmates are even singing the Jimmy Rogers song <laughs> in the jailhouse now. Uncle Red, get ready. And, of course, the Jimmy Rogers song, TV Blues, you know, self-explanatory for how the movie plays out. Was, was Marty Robbins the guy who, like, backs up him with the vocals? Yeah, yeah. Marty well, Robbins takes over the vocals during the session when Clint just is, like, coughing and just can't even make it through these recording sessions that he's sweating out one song at a time between coughing out his lungs. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, again, the cinematography of, like, these studio scenes kind of, like, Sometimes it'll take kind of like a a wider shot, kind of like getting a lot of the people in the studio. So you could kind of feel like the tension of recording in a studio and like how that could be kind of straining. But also kind of how that scene plays out where, you know, Clint starts coughing and coughing, can't quite finish. And uh, Marty Robbins steps in. I mean, aside from like just the emotional impact of, you know, seeing Clint fall like this, knowing that it's the end, just kind of the... The beauty, like the beauty of Marty Robbins, kind of coming in and like finishing off off for him, like it's, it's another thing that just reminds me of like the heavy collaborative nature of country music. It's just so brutal that scene. Like you, I mean, I feel like you have this beautiful song juxtaposed with like sort of the cold studio environment and you're not even like Clint's face is like to the wall and you're watching the nephew just sort of watch all this happen from like behind, I think he's behind like the, the glass, glass yeah. and it's just it's crazy it's like there's so many like feelings operating there it's yeah Yeah, I mean, uh, he he dies shortly after that. Like, he even refuses the oxygen tank. Like, he just knows he's going out. And uh, his nephew and Marlene, who we didn't mention, uh, the girl who, I guess, (laughs) uh, was offered to Clint Eastwood just outright by the guy who owed him money, she hitched a ride with them. And so uh, her and Red start a new life together, walking away from the grave. And they hear... The title track on a car passing by and it's uh what a, what a beautiful ending no i love that ending because it's like i don't know it's like at, at, like it's kind of uh proposing at the end of the day maybe it is all worth it you know your legacy will live on you know all that pain you went through you got your song on the radio and now you've inspired a young boy and possibly this girl to continue in a country career i found it i found it very touching rating uh I'm, you know i gave it four and a half on letterbox but just just feeling just talking this movie out and just i mean it's a five bullet for sure nice. i'm a pistol pack and papa five bullets <laughs> um yeah fuck it five bullets as well this is like a masterpiece to be able to like sort of reckon with the past and like sort of have this nephew character observe like all of the pain and all like of eastwood's sort of terrible behavior but like gleam sort of the joy and um, I don't know, just the freewheeling spirit of country music. Like this movie gets it so much because I think it really understands that contrast of like 
country music usually boils down to like two categories for me, or at least a lot of the classic stuff where it's like talking about like getting uh, fucked up on the weekends, like <laughs> chase and tail. And then the other half of country music is like how much you love fucking Jesus and how he <laughs> saved your life. And it sort of goes between those two poles um, very beautifully and uh, makes like such a human film that is able to like remark upon country music history, American history and Eastwood's relationship like with his son himself is I don't know. It's it's a fascinating movie. Yeah. I'm going to go five as well. It's a Western basic kind of, uh, and it's kind of a biopic, and it's kind of a melodrama. It's kind of a history meta text. Uh, it's kind but, of a comedy. It's kind of a yeah. Musical. It's kind of a comedy. <laughs> it's kind of a. It's kind of a uh, encouragement. You know, a PSA in favor of uncle nephew drunk driving. Yeah, which is the best kind of driving there is. I mean, <laughs> what what better bond you could have with someone than doing illegal things together? And absolutely, if other people find out, you get in trouble. That's, that's a bond right there. That's the outlaw spirit right there. And um, you know, I think what you said about cementing his legacy there at the end is like. That that's really what you take away from this film is like these guys, whether it's someone who had decades of studio success like Marty Robbins or a guy like Jimmy Rogers who, you know, got to record his shit. It ended up being successful and he ended up being a huge influence posthumously even on like the outlaw guys and just like getting it down on record just having yeah. these individual personalities of this type of music even within this very clean cut conservative uh milieu in terms of like the radio play and stuff like that is uh i don't know it's just endlessly fascinating so i guess uh, we'll be right back on extended clip and maybe we'll go out to some uh, jimmy rogers <laughs> i'm a pistol packing papa and when I walk down the street, you can hear those mamas shouting, don't turn your gun on me. Now girls, I'm just a good guy, and I'm going to have my fun. And if you don't want to smell my smoke, don't monkey with my gun. Old lady, old lady, old lady. And we're back on Extended Clip. It's Malcolm in the Middle. It's everyone's favorite segment. We've done this segment. I'm not going to say we've done this segment a hundred times, but it feels like we've done it a hundred times yeah. because it's in our hearts. This segment is older than the podcast itself. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about this segment even when we're not recording throughout the week. I'm like, when I'm watching a, a non-podcast movie, I'm like, is this my Malcolm in the Middle movie? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, I have a different approach. I keep it uh, really natural, or I just don't watch any movies um, during, besides the podcast movies, supposed to, like I did this week. So I'm going to have yeah. to go back from the archives. I'm going to talk about Donovan's Reef, which, you know, it's, it's kind of fun that we, um, we watch 50 First Dates because, you know, we get that nice island tropical vibe going for me. Yeah. It feels like summer already for me. But uh, for those who don't know, Donovan's Reef is kind of... John Ford's kind of uh, buddy hangout movie with John Ford and Lee Marvin. And uh, I should also note uh, Cesar Romero has a pretty uh, funny role in this movie as a 
mustachioed, horny governor of uh, Hawaii. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, there's a lot to like about this movie. A lot of drunken brawls between Wayne and Marvin. You got Marvin rocking a lot of sick, colorful t-shirts and stuff like that. And uh, I don't know, it is, this This movie is like the old guys rock the movie. Basically. <laughs> Have you ever seen the, the TV show? Yeah. Or the TV the show? The t-shirt old guys, you know, dudes rock completely out of fashion. You know, kind of hack to say at this point, but old guys rule always going to be in always going to be in and uh yeah i don't know it's it's a good time i enjoyed it that reminds me of there's another ford that has like big island vibes but is also like um pretty depressing it's about like uh it's they were expendable from 1945 uh also has uh john wayne it's great. I want to. We're gonna do it on the podcast at some point. I'm down. Um, but this one is set during World War II, and a lot of it is like chilling with the boys in like the Philippines, like island style. Yeah, and uh, it feels like a nice sort of like analog to Donovan's Reef. I would imagine. Yeah, you know, it's also kind of funny. Like Donovan's Reef does kind of have like this convoluted plot where like John Wayne's like nephews and nieces, their their dad is a doctor, so he's often not there. He's often you know doing medical stuff for all the people on the island, and um, that same doctor's daughter um daughter that he had back in america a white daughter um is coming to see if he's living immorally to get the inheritance but since he's not there john wayne has to act like the father so it's just like a very like twisty turny kind of convoluted plot but it feels like real sitcom style (laughs) no yeah i mean people say like this is like i saw neil b say like this is his like uh he tried to make a hawks movie and he made like a a jerry lewis movie and like there's some some of the humor that's so brutal that uh like i do i am reminded of jerry lewis but this is like i really do feel like he is giving a nod to hawks here it really does mm. feel like he's in hawks mode so crossing the aisle exactly two <laughs> legends versus four was there debate. ever was there ever beef there i don't think so okay i was yeah. just wondering it's like that'd be interesting that'd be interesting but ford 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 seems he, he's not the type to beef he keeps clean hands. I mean, I think he beefs with the freaking un-Americans. <laughs> That's why I think he beefs with, he beefs with uh, the United Kingdom. He's pro-IRA. That's true. That's true. <laughs> JT, you watch anything noteworthy recently? Um, Yeah, I'm picking up an old segment, Malcolm's Multiplex Minute. Ooh. <laughs> except this time I'm Malcolm. <laughs> go and ahead. You have my blessing. <laughs> I didn't go to the multiplex, but like... I don't know, theaters are reopening to some capacity, and it's like everyone's itching to go back to the theater, um, especially those of us that are vaccinated. And I was considering going to the theater to see this movie, but I wanted to watch it at home first to see if it was worth the the damn money. And it was uh, Godzilla versus King Kong. Everyone, people are talking about this. People online, like, they're cra- they're going crazy. Like a monkey fighting a lizard. That's, I mean, you know, to be like, to be fair, it's like if a move like that is like in concept, like King Kong fighting Godzilla, that should be a movie I I want to go see, right? Exactly. That's that's yeah. where I was. I, I think th- this is a this is a major studio doing one of those. Um, giant monkey fights a giant dinosaur goes burr tweets. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, exactly. Like, yeah. You know. <laughs> Who would win in a fight, King Kong or a hundred duck-sized Kongs or, or something to that Reddit effect? Um, but yeah, no, it's 
there's some aspects about it that I like in the sense where it's like probably the closest an American film has gotten to like traditional like the Japanese kaiju movies. Mm-hmm. But also, it like fucking sucks, and it looks <laughs> hideous. Yeah, like it is lit like absolutely terribly. Like you can't see anyone's face. It's just like I was thinking about. I was I was going Lex G mode the whole time, <laughs> just screaming about the sheen. It's bad sheen. It looks like shit, and it's like obviously a lot of very cg movies have that problem where it's like they're disguising the cg aspects of it by oh there's rain there's smoke there's whatever there's a whole fuck ton of that but there's like the classic there's the neon lighting now the bisexual lighting that the kids love and it's like it's fucking bullshit like the fights would be cool if i could see what was going on and like it's it's goes in the realm of like kind of goofy like plotting which i like there's like some hollow earth shit where it's like there's the monsters live in the center of the earth originally and it's like i'm there for stupid fucking bullshit but it doesn't engage with that on like nearly as campy of a level as i would like to Mm. and it just like i was distracted the whole time because of how like ugly looking it was and for someone who like I don't know in the trailers like I mean the trailers didn't look good but I was expecting it to go into a more like stylish like visual flair even if it was one that I would feel like would ring hollow for me but like so much of it just looks like trash and uh, not worth your time damn don't buy the ticket don't go back to the movies sorry (laughs) (laughs) you know JT I heard you mentioned bisexual lighting that that actually kind of it's like I feel like a movie should be at least rated PG thirteen or R if it's got some bisexual lighting. In it. I don't want to. I don't need my kids to see that stuff. <laughs> yeah, just watching it. Your your child is watching Kong vs Godzilla and thinking about bisexual sex. <laughs> <laughs> a man fucking either a man or a girl. Your your child is bisexual style. A man fucking either a lizard or a monkey. Yeah. <laughs> Look. And if you want to have sex bisexual style, <laughs> that's all up to you. you yeah. Know? But I, you Keep know. it in the bathroom. <laughs> old style. Old school style. Oh, God. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> oh, no, nah, man. I'm just kidding. No, you're not. I watched a movie this week called Uomimi Si Nasque Polizia Si Moro. Live like a cop, die like a man. Our Italian listeners are just going to be like, what? did he even say i, say, I tried you just, you just got me with uh you know some others you know me possibly pushing the line that was a little <laughs> i tried i tried to read it and halfway through i kind of started stumbling but That's okay it's a poliziotexi or whatever those are called uh, by ruggero diodato the guy who made like cannibal holocaust oh nice and um this is like insane this is just a movie about two cops who live by the dirty hairy you know shoot first ask questions later ethos uh living it to its fullest extent and i gotta be honest the the procedural police elements of this are super boring i i really hope the other policiotesques i watch have more like intricate plotting going on because i i i kind of thought like that aspect of like the mystery of some of the, the giallo films i saw would be more in these but this is just pure like michael bay mode like bad boys 2 kind of just dudes 
gallivanting around causing destruction and it's pretty awesome and they ride on a motorcycle together uh it kind of reminded me of my bodyguard the famous <laughs> very homoerotic motorcycle ride on that movie but the opening motorcycle chase on this i implore everyone to go watch it because the film is in full on youtube live like a cop die like a man and just the opening like 10 minutes is one of the most incredible motorcycle chases i've seen in any movie so uh yeah check it out and we are back on extended clip. We're not going to be right back. We're just, we're already back talking about 50 first dates, right? No breaks, hustle mentality. It's kind of like when you're walking, you know, or you're taking a jog, something that I often do. And uh, you slow down and you're like, damn, I'm tired now. If you would have just kept going, you would have still been jogging. So we're going to keep on jogging. Yeah, push through the pain. I'm going to get a runner's high this episode. Yeah, let, let the pain be, be a motivation. I know we're going to talk about that later, though. Motivation. Fifty First Dates is a 2004 film by the Happy Madison Film Production Company, uh, directed by Peter Siegel and starring our old friend, The Sandman, Oh, is he here in the studio? <laughs> hey, hey, Sandler, how are you doing? Oh, I don't mind you. <laughs> well, hey, thanks for stopping by. You can come back anytime you want. I don't mind you. <laughs> Many people don't know that when he's doing those voices, that's his real voice. Yeah. I will never be back here. And people are like, what? you know, why does he make these dumb voices? Like, what's he trying to get at here? It's like, no, man, that's how he actually talks. Show some goddamn sympathy. <laughs> he is not doing the voices in this movie, though. Unfortunately, no, he's a player. I, he's an absolute pimp and a player. <laughs> and you're getting, you know, pussy. Come on. Well, that was that was our that was our that, yeah. mind of Mencia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I and I didn't mean that. <laughs> I really I don't mean to steal jokes don't. from Carlos Mencia. <laughs> <laughs> no joke stealing on this podcast. That's what I was worried about. So in this movie, Adam Sandler uh, works as a guy who does surgery for fish sometimes <laughs> and sometimes feeds them. He's just a fish guy who hangs out with his buddy Rob Schneider, uh, a native Hawaiian. And he falls in love over and over with Drew Barrymore, uh, who... Her memory resets every single day due to a car accident that she was in. And her brother and her father kind of set up this facsimile, you know, best day ever for her every day of her life. Not to break the simulation uh, that she's kind of looped herself into, or at least that they've looped her into. And so, yeah, Adam Sandler, you know, high concept romantic comedy, 50 first dates. It's right there in the title. Uh, had you hadn't seen this one before, Malcolm? How how did you feel about this? Well, you know, I was kind of excited to see this because, you know, Sandler kind of has distinct eras, and this is kind of like, almost kind of like his post punk punch drunk love era where he's kind of he's getting very sentimental. He's doing other stuff mm. too, but Spanglish podcast favorite, um, obviously sentimental. This one definitely goes for it. I mean, something like Click is something that made a, a whole generation of boys everywhere weep. So it, it I don't know. Like I, I do like I do like kind of like the Billy Madison, kind of like the goofy water boy, heavy voice, heavy Sandler, like gags and stunts. But I mean, hey, he's a man who could do it all. Yeah, and there's a lot of stunts in the, there's That's a true, lot yeah. of like really good gags in this movie, even if it's just things that people are saying. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, there's like in terms of gags, like you get to see Rob Schneider just be beaten with a baseball bat by Drew Barrymore. <laughs> that like that rules. Yeah, you can't get any better than that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I guess I was saying that like it's not as many. I guess it's like uh, there's still like I don't know like Sandler doing all those things to get recognized by her again day and day. You know, he's still doing the gags and stunts, but I guess they're not as I don't know, kind of like the the youthful uh, exuberance of like Billy Madison and Happy yeah. Gilmore are not quite there. This is more of a, there's a purpose to this. This isn't just excessive fun seeking. And so it's all for love. Well, so. also he's leaving the crazy goofs to his buddies. Mm-hmm. You get some really great performances here, even if just in small roles by, you know, classics like Covert, Dante, etc. <laughs> Uh, Alan Covert has 10 second Tom, you know, a real classic third act entrance character. <laughs> <laughs> also, Peter Dante as the nurse is just, yeah, just so good. The guy who's really bad at his job that works at the <laughs> mental institution. <laughs> hey, Lucy, good to see you again. What the hell's her problem? She doesn't remember who you are, bro. Oh, yeah. I suck at this job. I mean, what a funny place to be bad at your job with, right? Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's even like a little bit of intertextuality within the Sandman canon. You know, you have Rob Schneider uh, trying to do the Happy Gilmore golf swing when they go golfing. And, you know, Sandman's like, oh, that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) And then all of his kids do the swing, which is, you know, very nice to see, you know, paying tribute to legends, of course. You know, coming to think of it, I was like his other kind of island movie just go with it also involved some heavy golfing so yeah. i mean sandler's big golfing eddie i know you've been on that golf shit lately that that had to fire you up seeing all that golf stuff in the movie oh yeah i mean sandler's a guy you just can't get off the course and uh, <laughs> whenever he can put it in his movie he's going to and that's something i love about him uh it, it's a really great moment there but it's followed by just the best here where you you get this first montage of adam sandler really understanding what's going on you know settling into this movie maybe it takes a little while maybe some of the exposition for some people who aren't familiar with how happy madison movies work uh might be a little slow but once you get to that first you have a 311 needle drop and then the no doubt needle drop as you see over and over adam sandler trying to woo drew barrymore in that cafe that she goes to every day if your heart doesn't melt there you probably won't really like the film that much but i you know if you're a fan of the movies that we talk about on this podcast you probably will oh my uh, god like the film quite a bit from that point on the bit w- that he does of like picking up a woman by pretending to not know how to read <laughs> is just so fucking funny to me i like, love the setup too he's just crying <laughs> because yeah. he can't read <laughs> not reading the menu <laughs> startle you. Oh, that's all right. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm having a problem with something, but... Is it something that I can help you with? No, no, no. I just can't read. You gotta be kidding me. Yeah, it's you know I like I love that sequence because like I love kind of the rapport Sandler has with like kind of the chef working in the back window, and Sandler's good at this, and like. I don't know. I feel like this is how movie stars should want to idealize themselves as like the man around town. You know what I mean? Someone who chops it up with everyone has like kind of like a little 
like an inside joke or just like a little thing that they have with everyone. And Sandler's just, you know, his affability always through the charts. So perfect example to be the man of our town. Yeah, I mean, he's got the sunglasses that are a little smaller than usual. <laughs> you know, that Oakley wrap around your head era that this film takes place in. It's very fitting. <laughs> I mean, I you mentioned earlier like it being high concept. And this is just... This movie is just pure movie magic for me mm. in that sense. It's like outrageous in the the whole notion of this, what you have to buy into. But it's it taps into something beautiful and cinematic. I think the way the film like focuses on like sort of setups of like repetition. Like I mean, that's great. Like comedy stuff in general because you can come back to this like really well-built world of characters but just by the notion of like she's repeating the same day over and over mm -hmm. you get so many like great little montages variations on that like setup there I, I don't know it's so much to explore especially in like what if the Blake Snyder heads would call the fun and games part <laughs> of this movie where you're just sort of like you're you're exploring the premise it's like it's so goofy you when you get to see Sandler doing those 50 first dates. Each one of them is a real uh, like fun gag or a riff. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what... Because, yeah, you could take the concept and be like, oh, this is kind of like strange. You know, maybe you shouldn't do this or whatever. 50 first dates, you know, you, maybe you shouldn't 50 first dates a size your woman or something like that. Yeah, but some of the sexual advances <laughs> may be uh, somewhat cancelable, if you will. But, you know, Sandler's yeah. charm is just so undeniable. Also, I mean, like it like it uses that concept to, like you said, to great effect. Like it really is like milking like the shit out of this concept. Like just uh, I don't know, like it, it goes from the diner to where like where she drives through the field and like Sandler will just be like. I don't know. We'll have some reason to stop her. My favorite kind of being the one where he's pretending to be like tied up or whatever. <laughs> and, and it's just, uh, I mean, yeah, it's, I don't know, something that was just kind of like, if this is like a drama, it's like, of course, this would be like a bit much to swallow, but it's like they use this concept to, you know, run around and have some fun. And I mean, I think the outrageousness really like for me builds to the sentimentality. Absolutely. I mean, in our hundredth, our, in our, the hundred episodes that we have done, we've talked about loving love yes. so much. Oh my God. And I think this movie like just has that feeling where it's like, I get so emotionally worked up and I hope I don't cry at any point talking <laughs> about this movie because it's just like, there's something like in embracing such a ridiculous concept of like someone having to woo a person like every day throughout their life it's so sweet and sincere and just like you feel the love in like all of the gestures that Sandler's character is making because it's like you have to be obsessed with a person and you have to really care about them to like put this much effort into it and that like I don't know just melts my heart every time yeah and you know it kind of takes a turning point as Sandler is you know he tries to do something different after he's ingratiated with the family and he gives her a new video that actually explains everything rather than setting her up into the trap this video that she could watch and it like I love how it like is full of these cultural time stamps from the era it's like hey uh Arnold Schwarzenegger's the president. Uh, yeah. For a second there, I was like, is is Sandler like going Adam Curtis mode? Is yeah, he going right? to try to explain <laughs> the world through, you know, editing and stuff like that? But 
I mean, of course, it gets a little bit more personal after that. Yeah, but it's really just like a violently emotional like scene. I mean, everything from there on, really, that's the only way I can describe it. It's like these people, it, it, it is pretty heavy, dramatic territory. And so the jokes kind of do go away other than, yeah, Covert and Dante and people like that showing <laughs> yeah. up to just do cutaway gags. Like you can't even mm-hmm. be in the same frame as Sandman because he's so sad, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, something I, I was really impressed with, with this movie is kind of like the the dramatic rapport in the back half between Sandler, Barrymore, and the father and son, which is like... <laughs> And you don't look a day over 25. Yeah, right. And Doug's muscles aren't pharmaceutically enhanced. What are you talking about? Hey, these an herb supplement they'd be purchased at any health food store. Check this out. <clears throat> Check out these glutes. Rock hard, baby. I don't know. Like, Sean Astin playing the son has, like, a very, you know, doofus character, has a lisp, uh, you know, takes steroids, apparently still has wet dreams and whatnot. But kind of, like, towards the back end of the movie, there's kind of, like, a lot of scenes where they kind of just have to seriously talk about Barrymore's situation or Barrymore kind of has to react to the reality of uh, her situation with like the whole family there in Sandler. It is just like an unlikely foursome of characters that really get like some dramatic points off, you know? Oh yeah. Blake Clark, the actor who plays the dad, like great, he's sensational. Like Mm -hmm. even before we get to the real like dramatic meat of it, when he's sort of in that, uh, set up where it's talking about how he does this like performance essentially every day for his daughter where it's like mm-hmm. pretending to watch a football game like already there like you can see him going off mm-hmm. and it, oh, man that that moment where Adam Sandler is just trying to reckon with you know they, they've now sent her off to live at the mental institution before that she like broke up with it because she realized you know, she, she's been keeping these diaries that she reads at the end of the night or that she writes in at the end of the night, uh, kind of her own system compared to the one that they set up for her uh, that she's been living through pretty much. And she decides that she needs to just erase this guy from her life to set him free, kind of. And then he's boating around and he listens to uh, pet sounds. <laughs> no, or he listens to Peach Boy's greatest hits. Yeah. But... Uh, Wow, wouldn't it be nice? The the song that holds this whole film together, uh, you know, the song of her parents and the song <laughs> that she sings while she paints. And then it turns out that she paints Adam Sandler's face because she sees him in her dreams. Uh, and it's it's such a beautiful way to end the film as it, you know, extends even further. She goes to sleep, wakes up, and they're together you know, is it Alaska that they're sailing to? Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, starting their their new life as a new family. It's it's a it's a really beautiful sentimental ending. You know. No. Yeah. I, I and also like I feel like it kind of addresses kind of like the built-in maybe uh, umbrage people would have where she gets to develop her own system, which you know that's that makes sense. You know, she gets to remind herself, like when he's listening to wouldn't it be nice it is funny because it's like the reason you know it's still proven that he should have went back but the reason you know he went back is like oh she remembers me she does of course in like her way but it's it's it almost seems like just kind of like random at first that he comes to that conclusion yeah that like she's like oh her dad handed me a cd that reminds of songs that remind me of her that must mean i gotta go there right now (laughs) and and like and that's what's great about i don't know any good romance movie is that 
where people kind of follow like these romantic impulses to get to, you know, these grand ones, I should say, get to see him rewarded. And, uh, I mean, Sandler gets his reward. He gets a, a loyal wife. Absolutely. That's what you need. <laughs> to hold you down. <laughs> when you're wilding out. Uh, any final thoughts on this one, JT, before we wrap it up? Um, I'm giving this one four and a half minutes. This is like one of my favorite uh, Sandler flicks. Like just watching it so much within the short span, uh, like a, a little less than a year. I've just come to love it so much. Mm -hmm. It has such, uh, I don't know, it's very melancholy and that notion there, but I love how it approaches love as this sort of, uh, like, uh, there's so much sacrifice. And it's not just romantic love. It's like familial love. And Mm -hmm. obviously it's cartoonish and ridiculous in a movie, but I love seeing those grand gestures on screen and people, like, doing something to like make another person happy and there's so many great performances and it's really funny and uh the sandman really uh brings it in this one it's a great classic eddie what about you what are your thoughts on this movie i'm gonna go four bullets on this one this film loves love about as much as any adam sandler movie (laughs) yeah definitely maybe bedtime stories more but that's like loving your kid you know True. like different. that's a little, a little different. different bedtime story is not so good uh this For free great film. bedtime stories has some funny bits <laughs> i'll always remember that that's yeah. all i gotta say yeah. <laughs> there's some good stuff in there it's be- is it better than pixels i don't know that's a that's a conversation for another day they're both around <laughs> the same around the same tier in my ranking yeah uh, but regardless back to this film it, it's such just like the island vibes you know the warm the warmth of the romance here is encapsulated by that like magic hour sunset uh, embrace that Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler have that's in this like really long shot and all these like dust is kind of clouding up the frame in between. It's really just like one of the most gorgeous and romantic images in any Adam Sandler movie, Uh, not just in the happy Madison milieu, you know, in all of them. And uh, yeah, I think it perfectly also fits into this era of Happy Madison. I've talked about it on this pod before how the eras are almost shaped by the auteur projects he does, you know? So it's like Punch Drunk Love and Spanglish coming off of those. It's like, yeah, he's in emotional mode. He's in tearjerker mode. And uh, it really really plays out for a couple of years there in a really really neat fashion, I think. No, definitely. I'm going to go Four Bullets as well. And yeah, emotional Sandler. I mean, he really does have some tear jerkers on, under his belt. It is, uh, you know, like I, I mean, of co- like people go crazy over like a, you know, a comedian, quote unquote, like taking like a dramatic role, you know, like me for Jim Carrey <laughs> in the number 23. I'm crazy about that. But, uh, I thought you were saying like you, like people were so yeah. excited for your dramatic turn. Yeah. Hey, I got, I got some shit brewing. Watch out for that. But, uh. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll pop up in a couple of years now. <laughs> well, you have to me. pop up as a comedian. First. True. Yeah. I mean, hey, um, hey, hey, hey it's a comedy podcast. <laughs> hey, it's a comedy. Po- that's what that was about. What I was about to say. Wait for it. Wait, yeah, wait. for it. We'll yeah. get to it. But like, I don't know. Throughout his career, Sandler was doing both in his movies. He was being a goofy guy who could talk to walruses and pull that off. But also, uh, or that, or not. That's what's. What are the characters in this movie? Like seals, there walrus. No, he has walrus. Walrus, walrus? penguins. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. and there's a penguin who he gives a Sunday to. That's nice. 
but uh nice. but then yeah then he could do the more dramatic roles at once and i feel like i don't know that's something him and clint share they could they could get some good talking to animal scenes yeah. they, they really it takes a really charismatic and affable actor to be able to do some animal acting scenes and i think they're two two of the best at it one thing we didn't mention is the opening montage of this film <laughs> is just telling you that adam sandler gets pussy oh, <laughs> it's just fucking rules. eight different women telling and like kevin james and kevin james telling the same story. yeah predating chuck and larry by four years <laughs> the prequel kind of uh, telling the same story about how this beautiful man swept them off their feet and fucked their brains out for three days and then <laughs> it's like i'm actually married or you know in the cia or something like that Love yeah this guy it was the best week of my life it was just a little vacation romance but he was so sweet he took me to all these cool local places. We went scuba diving, snorkeling, mountain climbing. Well, we got a little drunk. They always had a different excuse and it's just such funny padding in the beginning of it. Just like, yeah, Adam Sandler, he's he's a pimp. Yeah, he's the biggest pimp of all time. And other than like him leaving that girl, you don't really get to see it in action. Other people like just since it's yeah, it's kind of a family movie, right? You know, it is a good stunt yeah. too when he leaves that girl <laughs> and he's like talking. Uh, he's wearing the small uh, glasses. He's talking to into his watch and he like jumps on some guy on the on the water ski on the ski do or whatever. Uh, good good bit. Yeah, it's also kind of interesting because that padding like it takes it kind of takes a while. But also is like completely gone once the movie starts. Like the yeah, like it's like twenty. The first twenty minutes, it's like Sandler's a player and Schneider's like, "Yo, go get some pussy for me, bro," yeah. or something like that. Yeah, and Rob <laughs> Schneider being in the first twenty minutes way more than the rest of it is pretty funny too because he's still in it throughout the rest. But it's like it seems like it's more of a buddy comedy between them until he meets Drew Barrymore. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that that's it. So time for the email segment, extended clip podcast at gmail.com is where you can email us our first one comes to us from fabrizio torero it says hi extended clip big extended clip guy loved your work oh thank you was wondering 100th episode seems like a good time for some flashback content what's the extended clip origin story how did the band come together congrats on 100 well, we were at the bathhouse <laughs> one and, night. And I just love the way JT felt, <laughs> even before I saw him, just the way he felt in my hands. Yeah, it was much like, uh, much like Simon Lang's The River. Uh, you turn around, and the guy that you've been hooking up with is now your podcast host and your dad. <laughs> podcast co-host, rather. Sorry. Um... We all just slowly became friends on Twitter and uh, met JT once, and that was fun. And then I posted a tweet about wanting to start a podcast. Malcolm hit me up. Then we hung out, and I was like, okay. I think we're all just, we were hungry to get our voices out there, and we all just met each other at the right time. You know, it was a perfect storm. I feel like the podcast is also the project of making us all friends. That's like true, we, too. That's yeah, it's very pathetic. It's, <laughs> all, it's a friendship simulator. <laughs> but it became a friendship reality creator. That's true. 
Uh, the next one comes from Throbbing Jim. Oh, jeez. Oh, uh, it says, hello, kings. Release the tapes, release the vibes. How do you thrive? Translation. With what art are you christening grandmas? And where do you go for motivation beyond male soul core and West Watson? Wes Watson, sorry. Thank you for this show. It has made me a better man. I hope this makes sense. Hoping to write in more, but perfectly happy to be banned. Love. <laughs> Oh, and hoping Malcolm and Eddie squash the beef and unite oh, against Protestantism, as oh. in this Gene and Roger clip you've probably already seen. Oh, I think maybe we were a little a little snippy at the end of last week's <laughs> religious episode. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Uh, well, you know, it's I mean, it was just Easter Sunday or around. It was n- near Easter. Probably. The holy wars always come around this podcast during the times of Passover and Easter. Exactly. It's just people are talking about it. I get to thinking about it. I get fired up about it, and I say some things I regret. So, and I'm then sorry. we move on. <laughs> exactly. Like it's, exactly. It's early April. We're already good. Mm-hmm. Um. But with what art am I christening grandmas? I mean, I pretty much came in here and watched uh, a bunch of TV that's been on. Like, I have the local access uh, hookup for the cable, so it's really terrible. It just, like, all these weird channels. Uh, But I watched, like, the Jackie Robinson story on some cable channel called The Greedo. That was cool. There's also Mm -hmm. a cable channel called Grit. And that just has westerns all day. So I watched some TV westerns. When we recorded the bonus episode available on patreon.com slash extended clip um, this week, we had uh, Citizen Kane on VHS just chilling before we did that. That is very true. I've also been watching a lot of Frasier on DVD. Yeah, I was going to mention that, that I've been over here a couple times, got introduced to Frasier, never seen it before. That Frazier, Niles, it's a funny duo. That they got something going. They, the, those guys have got something up their sleeve. They're a little goofy. Yeah. But. The Grandma's Boy setup, I feel like, is prone for TV. Like it's, I said this off mic, but I think it's like '90s slacker vibes, basic cable. You're just watching whatever bullshit is on daytime television. We should do. I mean, we. I think we talked about it a little bit like eons ago. But maybe talk a little TV sometime. Yeah. Ooh, and yeah. what you say about daytime television is funny because every channel always feels like it's daytime programming <laughs> in this cable setup. But anyway, our next one. Oh, sorry. wait. We didn't answer the question about oh. motivation. Oh, oh yeah. True. All How right. do you stay motivated? Um, <laughs> well, it's it's through purely, purely through uh, consuming content, of course. And and. And Wes Watson, love the shout out. You're not going to get banned. You're going to, next time you send a question, you're going to the top of the list if you mention Wes Watson. But um, another fellow YouTuber I appreciate is Darman, if anyone's familiar with Darman. And Darman's a little bit different from Wes Watson. It's not really, it's not tough love. It's just, it's a very, uh, these kind of like sketches that uh, only exist to kind of get like a a moral across. Like you shouldn't... um, fat shame your girlfriend or you shouldn't uh i don't know dump a guy because he's poor or something and like a whole video basically uh um going to that and then sounds like it's perfect for our audience i'm sure everyone (laughs) in our audience is either a poor guy or has a fat girlfriend (laughs) (laughs) i i watch wes watson to get me pumped up get me off my ass watch some darman to keep me in line to remind me what really matters our next email comes from conrado falco by the way i have no motivation in life um conrado falco says hi fellas 
Congratulations on your move from the Jean-Luc Godard Chris Kyle studio, rest in peace, to the new Grandma sponsored palace. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the show and hope the move helps you keep doing your thing. Personally, I find your ongoing feud with Blank Check pretty funny. I'm a little ashamed to admit that I used to be a big BC fan, but have recently stopped listening altogether. Like you, I can barely stand the show. However, I can't quite put my finger on what I find so annoying. Maybe y'all could help me verbalize these thoughts. Thanks, and keep up the great work, Conrado. Well, that is just slow pitch, high arc, you know, softball setting. <laughs> but we're going to try and keep it brief here. I just don't want anyone to clip this and send it to Griffin Newman. I don't want to... I don't want... I want to... I, I'm trying to, to squash the beef recently. I think we should... Uh, I yeah, know. I saw they were recently attacked for disrespecting women, and it's like, you know, we do that on our podcast all the time, and if yeah. we get called... No. Uh, we. I can't even pretend. It's like I hate them so much, I can't even <laughs> pretend to be on their side in any way. I don't. I never really listened to them or, or at all, so I don't really have much of a reason to dislike them, although they are annoying. I mean, in the, you know, minutes I've heard or whatever... But it is just like I just like like he's I just want to take shots. That's the whole reason of yeah, it's uh, funny. Yeah, to make a podcast, I just want to fucking take shots. So I also it it is like frustrating. Just like they were recommended to me so many times, and you know, always been a very popular film podcast. I say always, you know, over the last few years yeah. at least. And I mean, I, all I gotta say is I never, I, no one's ever recommended me to them to me. That's all I gotta say. It's it's. <laughs> It's dire out there if you're if you're a pod head and you want to listen to stuff about movies. There's there's a lot of shows, but most of them are bad. Yeah, and so I tend to resent the popular ones because much like the unpopular ones, they are bad. I just I feel like for me it boils down to two things: is that like one, I don't think they have particularly interesting taste in movies. Like yeah. there's some like. They're, they have two dog shit top reviews for Spanglish that they That's deserve. That's mostly to, it, to be honest. They should, like, That's actually it. Send them to the, the guillotine for that one. Okay, well, you can't actually say that. That's, that's hey, like in a leftist way. In a leftist way. Being leftist. In a leftist way. Okay. Okay. But that, that, put them in prison labor camps in a leftist way for that. <laughs> but also, it's just like. I like in terms of podcasts in general, I don't like soy core bullshit where it's like people are like, oh, hey, guys, we're going to talk about this this week. And they're like performatively being like excited and enthusiastic. And it's just like, no, I just want to listen to people fucking talking like casually. Yeah, like, I guess I didn't mention anything about the actual podcast. I was just talking about it standing. I think it's a bad show because I think neither of them have anything insightful to say. Uh, and then on the comedic aspect, I don't think it's very funny. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Let's next well, question. It's next really question. that simple. Next question. Our next one is a positive one. Let's let's go back to, you yeah. know, we love love and I'm starting to hate hate. Dude, <laughs> I could I couldn't have said it any better. I'm really myself. intolerant of intolerance. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I Absolutely. Do, the no beef movement's looking better every single day. That's all I got to say. Our old friend Marshland is back. Eric Marsh is here. He says, what's up, dudes? Congratulations on the new digs, happy housewarming, etc. I haven't been this excited for my favorite fictional characters to move in together since I saw Ernst Lubitsch's Design for Living. <laughs> hey, maybe the same thing will happen. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, love always wins out. Um, I don't know what happens at the end of that movie. I only know like the premise of it. 
In honor of this occasion, I wanted to give you a housewarming question for the pod. What are your favorite movies that have the word house in the title? There's so fucking many. Personally, I would have to go with Sam Fuller's Cinemascope classic, House of Bamboo. But some other very solid choices out there like Mammoth's House of Games, Lang's House by the River, or Toby Hooper's Fun House. What about you guys? Cheers. Marshlands. Well, I think number one, and I, I think I will comfortably speak for all of us, it has to be American Pie Presents Beta House. Ooh. Nah. But that I thought is that a was a funny one. title. Yeah. For, in terms of as far as just pure titles go. Yeah. That is true. that is up there. I mean, Eugene Levy's in it. You never know. <laughs> with you know, with Eugene Levy, you know you're gonna get some <laughs> raw comedy. I mean a last house on Dead End Street we talked about on the pod. That's mm-hmm. like probably up there for me. Yeah, I mean in terms of like canon classic, you got stuff like Where Is My Friend's House and you know Roadhouse, The House is Black. I haven't seen it, but it's probably really good. The music video for Flow Rider's My House. <laughs> oh, I think that's <laughs> that probably is really good, that's actually. probably pretty good. I like the song a lot. Uh, two alternate titles. Uh, I heard you paint houses, aka the Irish house. Yeah. And uh, Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace in some releases is called Fashion House of Death, which I Blood and Black Lace is a cool poetic title. Like yeah. It rolls off the tongue, but Fashion Fashion House of Death is good. Like if it's at a grind house on a double bill, you know. Oh yeah, I like that. You know, with uh, <laughs> we should do it with Phantom Thread, like Phantom Thread, Fashion House of Death. Damn, that would be a good double feature. That that not, not a fucking double feature. Just let's make a movie called Phantom Thread, Phantom. Uh, <laughs> you can't Phantom House of Death. Phantom <laughs> House of Death. Okay, Phantom House of Death corner. Best Fanta flavor. Uh, um, gotta go classic, classic orange mode. Yeah. Also, Pineapple. the one in Germany is actually better, which I didn't think was a real thing, but it is. It's Pineapple soda is pretty good in my book. Pineapple Fanta, classic Fanta. Um, <laughs> but also, you know, with the movie, I heard you paint houses. I every time I hear that, I you know, I think of I heard I heard you paint toilets, and you know, the characters telling each other that, and like, the trailer would end with Robert De Niro being like, oh, "Don't go in there." <laughs> just. just uh, Pacino asking him to, to to shit in the in the clean toilets. <laughs> I mean, hey, yeah. Never sh- <laughs> you never show up to a meeting with shit running down your legs you're in, while you're wearing shorts. Yeah, that's why you don't wear shorts. It's because the shit can more visibly roll down your legs. Save it for the toilet. <laughs> I don't remember how people act. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to do a voice. Uh, a couple of 2000s comedies, Big Mama's House and Bringing Down the House. A couple of big stereotype heavy comedies there. Uh, Smart House. You ever see that? All right, I'm yeah. running out of ideas I, here. I've, I w- I've always wanted to see um, The Cider House Rules. I've been intrigued by the movie. So if anyone's ever seen that movie... Anyone at all? Let me know what you think about that. I mean, House, House of Games rules. rules. I yeah, mean, I like you mentioned it. You know, House of Games is awesome. Um, that's gonna do it for the emails and uh, extended clip podcast at gmail is where you write in for that segment. And that's gonna do it for the hundredth episode. How do you, how do you guys do? You guys feel any different yet? <laughs> I dosed them. Whoa. Um, nah, I feel the same. Yeah, just another day, just another podcast. But hey, here's to 100 more. Business as usual, just because we're so professional. But uh, 
Yeah, I'm glad we made it to 100 episodes. Me too. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad they didn't cancel us before. Oh. Take us off the air. That oh, was a big the way threat. cancel culture is going <laughs> these days, you never know. Hey, we might. Be, this might be, you know, one of the last weeks of extended clip due to cancel culture. So wow, cher- cherish these cancellation incoming. <laughs> I've seen the way things are going, man. We're next. The way things are going, the schism is coming. The future. You know, I was at the beginning of the episode. I was saying 100 more years of extended clip. The future is dark for extended clip. It's gonna get dark quick. Twelve more episodes. <laughs> uh, 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 Who knows what will happen? Uh, 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 You're just gonna have to tune in to find 